0: Now we're going to turn to the Word of God, and our reading this morning, you will remember, is in the book of Romans, chapter 1. So, we've just started our studies last week, uh, and we uh, continue where we left off. Romans chapter 1, from verse 7 to 17, as we think of this general theme of the gospel of God. So, verse number 7. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his Son, That without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is that we might be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I might reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Or as another translation helpfully puts it, a righteousness of God which is by faith from first to last. As it is written... The righteous shall live by faith. Amen. May God's word uh, touch our hearts as we think about it this morning. Um, We've got a question right right at the beginning. The question is this. Is there a phrase that sums up the gospel of God? Of course, you are are expecting me to say yes, Uh, there is. And there are probably a couple of them, but there is one in particular in our reading This morning, that that really sums it up. And it's, it's the culmination, it's the build up of the entire reading this morning. The very last statement, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That's the one. Now, everything has been building up to that. It's Paul's main point, it's his headline message. It's the thing that he wants people to take away more than anything else. And in many ways, the whole of the book of Romans is a bit of an expansion on this key phrase that the righteous will live by faith. And that's what we're going to be speaking about this morning. This phrase actually became known as the, as the battle cry of the reformation way back in the 1500s, if you know your history books, uh, in Germany uh, under Luther. This was the great thing that he kind of rediscovered from the times of the apostles as he read the book of Romans for himself. And this was the point that he began to hammer away at and emphasize against the kind of obscure... Doctrines and corruptions of the church at that time. This, this was the light that Luther preached and that shone into the hearts of Europe. The righteous will live by faith. Now you'll probably remember from last week that I said to you that this is actually, this phrase is mentioned a number of times in the scriptures. It originally, and you might, we'll, we'll, we'll turn to them as we go on, the original quotation is from the, the Old Testament, the book of Habakkuk in chapter 2 we have it now in Romans we also have it in Galatians 3 and we have it in Hebrews chapter 10 as well so you can see how important this is the fact that it's emphasized and it's repeated like this but he builds up to this point and I have to say of course something about the build up message from uh, verse number 7 on before we get to this point briefly because I want to get to the main thing so, another couple of questions then from that first part. What, what was Paul's intention? What was Paul's prayer? What was his desire above everything else? Well, as you read down these first few verses, you realize that his his real desire and prayer actually to God was that he would be able to visit Rome. He wanted to come to Rome. Uh, and, and he qualifies that desire by saying, "By God's will." You probably saw that there. I don't suppose that the way that Paul reached Rome was really what he'd planned. Uh, he probably had booked his ticket on some some boat. You know, after he'd visited Jerusalem, uh, he had his eyes, as we know, very firmly set on Rome, then Spain. And it didn't really work out at all the way that he anticipated it, his coming to Rome. I mean, if you just flip your Bible back one page to the last chapter of uh, Acts 28, uh, and you read there at verse number 7, it says, And so we came to Rome. All right. Now, he came to Rome after being arrested, after languishing in prison for at least two years, After being on a storm where he nearly lost his life, landing on the island of Malta, and eventually picking up another boat, again under arrest, under the jurisdiction of a Roman centurion, and eventually he gets to Rome by God's will. Now the point in passing that I'm making is this, is that God's will for us is not primarily about our circumstances in life. It is about our spiritual condition. You know, what was most important, as Paul said, by God's will I'll come to Rome, was that he would come still with his faith in Christ and with his desire to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ and the power of the gospel. And so for us, it's good to just remember that when we pass through storms, metaphorical, you know, difficulties, things that are not anticipated, The will of God for us, more than anything else, is that our focus is on Christ and that we're living for him. that's the will of God beyond any circumstantial or geographical considerations as far as our life is concerned. Second thing, second question, not just what was his desire, why did he want to go to Rome? Now, he actually lays out a couple of reasons. Obviously, he wanted to see these people who'd heard about, who'd come to faith. There was a church now at the center of the empire. He wanted to be with them. But look, look at how he, how he expresses this. Verse number 11. First of all, he says, I want to impart some spiritual gift to you. Well, he just was in Jerusalem, you know, where he gave a financial gift. Now he's going to Rome, and he wants to impart some spiritual gift. He wants to give them something. He goes on to say that that should be a mutual thing, that we mutually might be strengthened and encouraged by each other. So he's not just going as the great apostle, I'm going to give you this, you know, out of the fullness of my ability, you know, there's a humility there. And he says, it will, be, it will be a mutual thing. I'll be encouraged by you. I'll be strengthened when I meet you and I see your faith in Christ and what's happened in your lives. I mean, I've certainly been in that kind of situation. I remember meeting up with somebody who'd, who'd lost his job you know, And I thought, well, we'll have a cup of coffee. Maybe I can just be a wee bit of support or whatever to, to this, this chap. And I went away. And I was the one that was encouraged. You know, when I saw how he was responding to that and what his attitude was to all of that, it was a mutual thing. And, and, that, and that's what the Christian life should be. That, that's what life in a local church should be. The mutuality of our faith encouraging and supporting each other. When we come here this morning, just as an example, it's not just to receive a gift. It is to give yourself to others so that there is mutual encouragement. So that, that was the first reason that he wanted to visit. The second one from verse 13 is this. I want to reap a harvest among you as I've done everywhere else that I've gone. Reap a harvest. What did he mean by that? Well, that phrase is used two ways, really, in Scripture. First, way is this that it can refer to new converts people who come to Christ as Saviour for the first time. You remember Jesus used it that way lift up your eyes and look on the fields because they're white already unto harvest. You know, the harvest is plentiful, but the labourers are few. Pray the Lord of the harvest that he might send out laborers into his harvest field. I want to reap a harvest in that way. To Jew, Greek, barbarian, Gentile, whoever, wise, foolish. I want to reap a harvest of of, of faith in Christ. The second way it's used is to refer to spiritual maturity. You know, the fruit... Of the Spirit, the harvest, if you like, of the Spirit is all these Christian qualities love and joy and peace and self control and so forth. The life of Christ, the life of God's Spirit, as He indwells me, is worked out in my life as a harvest. And He said, I want to come and reap a harvest among you people. And then, thirdly, the reason that he wanted to come from verse 14 is because he felt a sense of obligation. I feel obligated to you. In fact, he said, I feel obligated to everybody. You know, rich, poor, wise, foolish. I feel under a sense of obligation. And and that sense of obligation comes from the fact that I know about the gospel. I know the gospel is the power of God. God. I know it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes in it. And because I know that, and I've seen that, and I've experienced that, I have a tremendous sense of obligation to bring that message to you. Now, of of recent days, you know, this whole idea about obligation has, has been highlighted. You know, the the fall of Kabul, people who who helped Britain, translators who put their lives on the line, and a sense of, we owe it to these people. We have a responsibility towards these people. We have a sense of obligation to get them out, to help them, to protect them. It's our obligation. Now, that's the the sense that he he uses it. And, you know, what. I suppose, I suppose we should all be feeling like that. Those of us who know the gospel and its power and its tremendous salvation. And speaking for myself, all, all too often, that, that is lost at times. And, and this comes to us as a fresh challenge and reminder today when Paul says, I want to come because I, I feel obligated. Do we feel obligated? Do we feel obligated? in that sense and now after building all of this up he comes to to the main the main thing the main point and he says in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed which is by faith from first to last as it is written the righteous shall live by faith There's a place called Yad Vashem, um, which is in Jerusalem. That's the name they give to their Holocaust Memorial. And there's a corner of the Holocaust Memorial that is uh, called, or is in honor of people who are referred to as the righteous Gentiles. You know, For instance, one of the names that most of us will probably recognize that's there is Otto Schindler. Schindler's List. You know, the man who in uh, Poland, I think it was, in his factory, he uh, employed Jewish workers. And because they were on his list of workers, they were able to be uh, saved from the extermination camps. And because of what he did because of his bravery, because he was willing to stand up, he is listed in the role of honour by a grateful nation who call him along with others who did similar things, a righteous man, a righteous Gentile. Now, we, we, we can applaud that, of course we can, but I'm mentioning that as a kind of illustration because of course we're talking about righteousness here what makes a righteous man or woman am I righteous like Schindler and others because of bravery or for doing the right thing for speaking up for standing up or is there anything else that might make me righteous you know, if we were, and you might want to do this, turn to Galatians chapter 3, round about verse 11, which is where this phrase is used again. It's, 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 he's, he's trying to explain it in those terms. He's trying, to, he's trying to convey the point, what makes a righteous man or woman? Because there were people who were infiltrating the church in Galatia, and, and the point they were making was, you know, the observation of the code of God the Ten Commandments is absolutely central absolutely crucial you have to do that or you will never be righteous you'll never be a righteous man you'll never find your name on that rule of honour and Paul has to make the point there no no, no the, the law actually doesn't bring blessing at all it doesn't bring righteousness it actually brings a curse because whoever is not able to fulfil the law is cursed and we know what the law of God means. Not to steal. Not to lie. Uh, to honour our neighbour. To honour God. With all our hearts. With all our soul. With all our mind. And it's not just a matter of one or two outweighing the, de- the default. If we fall at one point, we have broken the, the whole. That, that's the, the plain teaching of scripture. And we fall short of God's standard. And and therefore by the observation of the law we we will never be righteous people. And then he brings in this quote, because as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. If I want to be a righteous person, and by the way, verse 7 when he when he when he introduces himself and he he refers to them as saints. That's the same idea. A saint is not somebody in some kind of alabaster statue or whatever. It is is somebody who is righteous. Who's been set apart from for God. And all Christians fit that bill and fit that uh, characterization. You know, righteousness, being characterized by a righteous, living, truly having life. Is by faith in Christ alone. Now, the Reformation that Luther led under God, there was was one particular catalyst uh, uh, situation that highlighted this point. And it had to do with a man called John or Johann Tetzel, who was a German-Dominican priest and who, who led a movement at that time that had to do with something that was uh, was referred to as, as spiritual indulgences. Now what that meant was this, that for payment, financial payment, letters were written by Tetzel and other priests with the authority of the church that pronounced the remission of sins for people. Not only them personally, but for others of their families, even people who were dead. And and he had a little jingle that became well-known. His little phrase, his little headline thing was this. As soon as the gold in the casket rings, the rescued soul to heaven springs. That was the jingle that Tetzel had. Okay. And, And, of course, we look on that and we see massive how could people be taken in by that you know massive corruption but th- this was this this was the this was the overwhelming message of the church and people people were taken in by that and and these caskets were brought along and the, the priests lined up and the sermons were given and the people came and they and the and the jingle of the gold coin hit the casket and the, and, and they received their letter of of, of forgiveness for sins past present and future and Luther said come on boys really? he reads Romans what is it that gives forgiveness of sins? what is it that pronounces righteousness? is it the fact that I give money to the church that I obey what the priests say? no the righteous will live by faith and by faith alone in Christ alone and that was his message, the battle cry of the Reformation. And in our day and age, you know, we might not expect you to come and put your money in the box. There are many religions throughout the world that do expect from their adherents something that they contribute to notch up the points in favour with God. And even in a humanistic society like our one, People by and large feel that if I give to charity, if I am a good neighbor, if I am kind, if I am a family man, these are all things that will merit me with God and I I will be righteous. No. The righteous will live and they will only live by faith in Christ. That is how righteousness is obtained. Now, there is a, a key example that the book of Romans gives. You know, we'll get to it in time, obviously, but if you were to turn to, to chapter 4, at the end of chapter 4, Abraham, the father of faith, the father of the faithful, is emphasized. And the way, the way that that is emphasized is this. God says to Abram, you're going to have a son. How, 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 how can I have a son? I'm nearly a hundred years old. I mean, physically, you know, physiologically, it's just not going to happen. There is nothing that I can do to make that happen. You can't go away to the fertility clinic at ARI, you know, away back in Mesopotamia or whatever. You know, it can't be done. And yet... If you read these these verses at the end of Romans 4, it says this, Abraham did not consider the deadness of his own situation. He didn't consider that. What did he consider? He considered God. And that what God had promised, he was also able to perform. And he was strong in faith. And because of that, God credited that faith to him for righteousness. And he became the father of the faithful. And he is an example and illustration for us. We look at ourselves and we say, but what can I do to merit God's favor? I can't do anything. I've fallen short so many times. And God holds that there. Because you see, this idea of righteousness, you know, it's a legal term. You know, as you go through the book, you'll find also the word just is also used, or justification. And really, it is a forensic term that belongs to the courtroom. I am either righteous in that sense, acquitted, not only acquitted, but pronounced to be righteous in the right before God, a right standing, before God or I am not I can't contribute to that as I stand before God the judge God needs to do that and the only thing that will bring around that pronouncement of righteousness is if I have faith in Christ Galatians 3 if you were following that little part down mentions the fact that Christ became a curse for us Cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. And all my unrighteousness was born by Christ. And, and see, that's the problem. I am unrighteous. If you look down at verse 18 of chapter 1 of Romans, next week he's going on to say, as we look at it, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We are unrighteous. If you want a little bit more in the way of detail about what that looks like, look down at verse number 29. All manner of unrighteousness, for example, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, strife, deceit, so forth, gossip, slanderers, insolent, all of these things are characteristics of unrighteousness. How can I contribute to washing that away from my slave? I can't. Like Abraham, I can't. I need to come to Christ who bore my curse of unrighteousness on the tree, took my sin, and righteousness, the just will live by faith in him. That is the great message of the gospel. Now, just as we come towards a conclusion, we ask ourselves the question Am I there? Is this something that applies to me? Does this describe me? A righteous person? Am I constituted righteous? Is that my standing before God? I can have that by faith in Christ. This phrase can be understood in a slightly different way. That's the first way. It can also mean that those who are righteous will live their lives by faith. You know, the first hymn that we sang today about those who live by faith the big list in Hebrews chapter 11. In fact, if you were to go back to the book of Habakkuk, where this first of all is mentioned, that's the way it's used. I mean, if, you have, if you're able to find it, <laughs> Habakkuk chapter 2, verse number 4. I mean, Habakkuk is looking around, and things are desperate. You know, there is, there is so much violence. If you look at the start of chapter 1, There is so much destruction. The law is paralyzed, he says. Justice never goes forth. And over and above that, there is this invasion by a wicked, oppressive nation, the Chaldeans, who just trample over everything. And, And he looks around, and he says about them, their soul is puffed up with pride. But the righteous will live by faith the righteous will live by faith and, 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 he, and he struggles and he asks the question of God why is this happening he looks at what his eyes are seeing and, and that causes real turmoil and he's got doubts but he reminds himself listen I've got to live by faith God, he'll live by looking at the unseen, the promises of God, the things that have been taught. The righteous will live by faith. And eventually, he works his way through that. And if you read the very final paragraph of of Habakkuk, that's where he, he makes this great statement, even although the fig tree doesn't blossom. You know, and there's no fruit on the vine. And the project, produce of the olive fails and, and the and the fields bear no fruit, even although everything's a disaster all around me, and life is as difficult as it could be, yet will I rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Now that is living by faith. That is living by faith. And the just, the righteous are to live by faith. That's the challenge to us. Now, if I can take you to the final citation of this verse, it's in Hebrews chapter 10, and it's making the same point. And the same point is this. If you look towards the end of Hebrews chapter 10, it says, look, I know how it was for you folks, how difficult it's been, the oppression that you've had to endure, the suffering, the affliction, the reproach, you even took the the plundering of your property because you sided with Christ, don't throw that away. Persevere in that. Endure in all of that. He says this, because in a little while, the coming one will come. Christ will come. He will not delay. Verse number uh, 37. But my righteous one will live by faith. And he says, and we are those who have faith and preserve their souls. And he gives that whole catalogue of examples of people who did that. People like Noah, people like Moses, people like Abraham. It goes on and on. In their generation, in their times, with the particular things that happened in their circumstances. They chose to live by faith. You know, For instance, if you looked at what it says about Noah, my, my eye particularly caught this one. Verse 7 of Hebrews 11. Noah, after being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark. And this is the phrase for the saving of his family, for the saving of his household. His his family were saved because because of what Noah did in response to his faith in God. What did he do? He constructed that ark when everybody mocked him, when everybody thought he was a crackpot, when nobody could understand, when the world just went on as it always went on for the saving of his family. He obeyed God and he constructed that ark. Now that ark is a picture of Christ, by the way place of refuge a place of safety when the storm breaks and we always ask the question are you in the ark you know metaphorically are you in christ are you safe and secure in christ he constructed that ark for the saving of his family and that's a message that comes to many of us today isn't it Make sure we construct the ark. What I mean is that? Make sure we put things in place. We make it clear. We make it plain. We can't save our families. But we can at least put things in place so they know that there is a place of safety. And and Noah did that. And there are many other examples, of course, in this chapter. In a sense, this morning, we come to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And we look and we, we just see a loaf of bread and we see a cup. That's all that there, there is there on that table. And yet faith sees beyond that because the righteous live by faith. And what we see here is something that represents the body of Christ that was given for me. The body that brought the Son of God In his love to me. And we see the cup. That represents the blood of Christ. That represents his death. That is able to bring me. To him. Because it's the blood of Jesus Christ. God's son. That cleanses. From all sin. And so. In a moment or two. uh, Mark's going to come. And he's going to give thanks. And we will participate. And hopefully we will discern the Lord's body and the Lord's blood. The focus of our faith, Christ. This is our battle cry. This is our watchword. This has to be our motto. In this generation, as in every other generation, this is what sums up the gospel of God today. The just, the righteous, will live by faith. Now shall we pray. Lord, thank you for the clarity of of the gospel, the precision of this statement that brings to our attention how we can be declared righteous before you. And ask that for all of us here, That that will genuinely now be our position. Not trying to establish our own righteousness of merit or works. But standing four square on the righteousness of Christ. That Jesus, his blood and his righteousness are what we depend on. That we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And we pray that for us too that in this humanistic society help us to remember That we are to live by faith and not by sight. Lord, we give our thanks. We thank you for the opportunity of remembering Christ, of fixing our eyes on him. Lord, help there to be worship that arises from our hearts. Real appreciation to the greatness of our Savior as we ask in his name. Amen.